Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest this week is Dr. Valerie Bridges, the superintendent of Edgecombe County, a rural high needs district in Eastern North Carolina with 14 schools and 6,000 students. Valerie won North Carolina Superintendent of the Year last year, and it's easy to see why. She's committed to innovation, to providing students with rich learning opportunities and experiences to get them excited about learning and giving them a voice in their education. What's powerful about this is that the students getting these opportunities are outperforming the ones who are sticking to the more traditional model of schooling on state tests and on school performance. Valerie refuses to buy into the idea that poor districts can't have the bells and whistles of 21st century learning because they need to focus on basics. We can walk and chew gum at the same time, she says, meaning they can provide the core academic instruction while also leaning into passion projects, addressing student belonging and safety, and finding ways to get to know each young person and who they hope to become. Poor is more than not having money. Poor is not having opportunities. And so, although economically our kids may struggle, their families may have a hard time, what we don't want to create is a school system that's poor, so to speak, lacking opportunities. And so we are determined that we don't have to wait until our kids get to a certain point or we wait until our data is at a certain level before we bring out the really good stuff, right? In this episode, you will learn about how Edgecombe County created a micro school to test out some of their more radical ideas, a different kind of school day, a different kind of curricula, and how it is scaling that success. We talk about the design process Edgecombe went through to get community buy-in, including inspiration visits to schools and businesses with parents, teachers, and students, empathy interviews to understand parents and students' hopes and dreams, and a statement of graduate aims, which the community wrote, which outlines what Edgecombe County graduates should be able to do by the time they are 25 years old. This is a good one. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Valerie Bridges, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Glad to be here this morning. Why don't we start by hearing a little bit about you? Where did you grow up? What was school like for you? And what did your parents do? I am a North Carolina native, born in Statesville, North Carolina, but I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. My mother was an educator. She was an elementary teacher. She was the quintessential teacher mom. You know, homework was not a question. It was just an expectation. During the summer, as a kid, I played school with my sisters. We'd get out. <laughs> I know, right? We'd get out on, on a Thursday or Friday. And on the next day, we were playing school. I, I was her student, not the teacher or the principal. Now, she did not turn out to be an educator. I did and had a wonderful career. Been a teacher. I've been an assistant principal. I've been a principal. I've been a director, assistant superintendent, associate superintendent, and currently a superintendent. And I've worked in really, really small rural districts. And I've worked in large districts such as Wake County and Guilford County. And now currently superintendent in Edgeco. I'm going to do a little humble brag for you here, too, and recently named uh, Superintendent of the Year for North Carolina. So you kind of left that off the CD. So I'll just add that. <laughs> I love that uh, you're in a come from a family of educators. I definitely hear that pattern a lot. And I love I assume that you were the younger sibling, which is why you got to be the student and not the teacher and probably why you became a teacher. But we won't get into that today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Edgecombe? What does the district look like and what are its greatest challenges? So Edgecombe is a small community, about an hour 
east of Raleigh, Wake County, large urban district, but we are a rural district. We have 14 schools. We have about 6,000 students, and we are a high-needs district, meaning many of our families and our students come from families that are in poverty or very close to poverty. So So they've had some experiences that are difficult. But we are also a a district and a community that's very resilient. Princeville is part of our community. And Princeville is is a community that has been beveled with several floods and uh, had some just horrific things happen. But it's also the first city colonized by uh, African-Americans. And so resilient, lots of rich history there. Um, We still have a school that has been rebuilt for the second time, a flood in 99 and then a flood again in 2000s. We're a resilient school system. We are very innovative. We, we pride ourselves on being an ambidextrous organization, meaning we take care of the day-to-day. We know we need to do that, but we also focus on our future and our future being our students and what their needs and their passions are about. We take that seriously. When you see our strategic plan, it's embedded as part of that plan and, and what we truly believe for our students. What is a micro school and when did you introduce it and why? So we do have one micro school that, that we worked on in our district. We, we did that work in 2017. I was installed as superintendent in 2017. We worked with Transcend and uh, worked with a dynamic middle school and high school principal, and at the time, our director of innovation. And so we went through a year-long process, and at the end our charge was to decide what do, what do we want to do that's going to make a difference for students. And we decided that we wanted to do a micro school. Our micro school was made up of 15 eighth graders and 15 ninth graders or rising ninth graders. And we opened the enrollment. So there was no parameters. Any student, any family who wanted to be a part of the micro school could be a part of it. So we started with those 30 students. Some of those students had some behavior concerns. Many of those students had some academic gaps or lags. We continued to work with those students and and, and created a micro school. Now, the micro school is, is a small kind of cohort of students It was housed on the high school campus. Um, We had very bare bones staff that were supporting those students. But what we did was we created a daily schedule that really leaned into inquiry-based learning. It leaned into project-based learning. Students had an opportunity to really unpack and think about their passions and their dreams and what they wanted to do. And the adults' charge was to make sure that, one, we covered those standards within the work that they were doing. We wanted to make sure that their experience was very natural. We, we worked real hard with SEL and making sure those students felt good about who they were. And when they had issues or concerns, that they knew that they had adults in the building who were going to help with those concerns. So you you weren't on your own taking care of your, your personal needs. That was part of the work that we wanted to do. We saw tremendous gains in those students. And again, these were not students at all were excelling students. There were, there were many students within this 30 that had academic difficulties, behavior difficulties, English as a second language, had attendance issues just, you know, the previous year. But we wanted to say, if we create the conditions in a school that we know are best and right for students, 
will our kids thrive? And they absolutely did. Um, so when we look at some of the data, they outperformed for eighth and ninth grade that year, they outperformed all other school students in our district academically. Their behavior concerns were minuscule. The, you know, we had a couple students that were frequent flyers to the principal's office that came to a halt. And I think it came to a halt because there was a space where personalized attention, attention to detail. They're getting off the bus. You notice that something's not okay. There's a time for a conversation. They had created within their schedule periods in which students had opportunities to praise each other, to share if something was wrong, and to get support with academics. And a lot of times I think what happens is students get frustrated when they don't know something in class, and that just kind of feeds off of other things. And so what we made sure we did was we didn't want you to leave class any day and be confused. So there's this stop and pause that you can have, and, and we made sure that that happened for students so that every day felt like a good day, felt like a day of learning for, for our students. And again, the, the results were academic, behavior, social, emotional. And so when we did um, different surveys during school closure due to the pandemic, these students continued to thrive. When I looked at the middle school and the high school in our district, they were the schools and the students that even during a pandemic stayed connected and stayed kind of on track. And I think that what I found was if you have the infrastructure in place, like they know I can count, I can call Mr. Cannon. I know that I can reach out to Ms. O'Meara or one of my teachers because I've experienced that and I can trust them. And so when it's a real emergency or urgency, that's the behavior that they're going to exhibit. And that's exactly what happened even after as we were in a pandemic and school closure. Just back of the envelope for us, how much of that outperformance, reduction in behavior issues, trust that was built up, how much of that was the curriculum and how much of it was size? You had 30 kids, you know, in sort of this pilot program, much easier to deal with than a sort of typical class size. I think it's hard to, to really pull apart the things we did and give each one a specific number. But I do think that the passion projects, the focus on the curriculum, making sure students realize their voice really did matter. It wasn't just adults saying that and then it not coming to fruition. I think they tested us on a couple of those things um, to see, do, do you really mean it? You, you said you love me. Do you really? Let's see if I'm having this bad day. Are you still going to be pleasant? And I think what they found out was that their teachers and their principals and the staff there really did mean it. And so even when there were things that happened that weren't so good, it was the act that we talked about and not the student, not the person, because we, we believe in them. I think the size, certainly for us, we needed it to be small so that we could be sure that the things we were doing would work. Now, since then, we, we've scaled. And, and so we've done some work. We had eighth and ninth. We went down and we've used these same tenets from the micro school in the middle school and we've used these tenets up. We've gone up. So at the high school, ninth and 10th grade are doing some of these things. We are still seeing some great results. At the high school, we've exceeded growth. And this is the testing model for North Carolina. You cannot meet growth. You can meet growth or you can exceed growth. And at the high school, every year we have exceeded growth. And so I think that's a testament to one, the leadership, 
and of course the teaching staff there. But I also think that when we've infused it with the curriculum that really speaks to students and they feel like they're part of the decision-making, I think they perform better. They feel like they're part of the day and they got to decide what they're going to learn. I think that matters rather than here's what we're going to do with you and you can get on board or you cannot. I think by high school and probably middle school, they check out on that. They decide, no, I won't learn. <laughs> I won't do this. And so I think it's impacting that we've included them in this decision and how we ought to do the work. And give me an example of something you tweaked, maybe based on their feedback. So there were some curriculum things we noticed. So early on, we noticed that when we were doing some of the benchmark testing, that some of our kids had, I'll say learning gaps. I'm not sure if that's the appropriate word to use, but some of the math concepts were, they struggled. When we looked back, we were spending some time doing other things and they needed some real ground level work on some math concepts that they may have missed in sixth or seventh grade. And so we had to make a tweak on the curriculum with them knowing this is the why and this is this is how we're going to do it. So we included them in the conversation around it and how we were going to do this. And they were receptive, like they got it. They recognized that, you know, I hear what you're saying. I understand this concept, but I don't understand some standards that build up to this concept. And so we went through that process. That was one thing that I noticed that they were active in their learning and not passive. The second piece was around them having some conversations about passion projects and what they were going to read or what they were going to be able to present. The same skills can be utilized regardless of what project or what person I decide to study. They were able to pick that and have just car blanche around what that looked like. And you could see when they would present projects, it was a different level of energy because That was their decision on who and what to to study. These are the parameters for this project, but you got to pick who you wanted to study. And then I think the third thing that students kind of had a little bit of pushback or debate around was the dress code. They felt like the dress code didn't allow them the autonomy to, to just be an authentic student and to wear things that were more comfortable for them. Some of our dress code, it didn't make any sense. We don't know if one student on one day did something and we changed the policy so it impacted everybody, but there were some antiquated things in our dress code and our students said why, right? They they advocated for themselves. And when they asked the why, we didn't have a good response except for that's the way we've always done it. And so we loosened some restrictions there that made a big difference for them. And it made them feel like they were a part of making change happen. And they did it respectfully, which is is what you want. They did it in an adult manner where they they gathered data and they, they talked about the policy and what we could do differently and what are some things we shouldn't be able to wear, but these are things we should. And they they were able to get their principles to advocate on their behalf, to be able to to not have such a stringent dress code policy. That felt good coming from students. And, you know, as adults, we didn't feel like we've had to hold the line. It felt like the right thing to do. How many students are in the quote-unquote micro school now? We started off with 15 eighth graders, 15 ninth graders. It has spread 
to over 200 students because what we've done is we've done sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, and then at high school, ninth and 10th. And then the 11th and 12th graders are doing something called Hub and Spoke. And so that's a little play off of the micro school, but it's helped to kind of enhance and specialized work for them. If you were giving advice to a district that maybe didn't have the benefit of a partnership with something like a Transcend, what was most impactful in your process of redesigning this school and getting community buy-in? The community conversations were powerful. We were able to go to families, business owners, faith-based, parents, grandparents, and ask some provocative questions. What do you want for your child? What do you want to see happen? Um, And I think they honestly had never been asked those questions. What the typical is, this is the catalog of options that school systems provide, and you are to pick from these options. If you don't see what you want or what you need, mm, that's too bad, right? And so what we did was we did that differently. We asked, what do you want? What are your dreams? What are your passions? You know, we asked that of our community, but we also asked that of our students. And be careful what you ask for, because if you you want people to be open and transparent, you have to be willing to hear the responses. From those responses, we begin to develop the graduate aims. And so those graduate aims said to us, you know, more about what type of students and, and people we wanted to help to create. And it was around working hard and being able to navigate your own course and those sorts of things that sound lofty, but they really aren't. They really are the things that make kids and students be able to know their purpose and to understand their meaning and and why they're here. It helped our students really believe in themselves because I think there's some spaces in which that wasn't what they believe. We talked about things around whether they go to school or whether they go to the military or whether they would go to the workforce. But what was important was you have these options of remaining in Edgecombe, leaving Edgecombe or coming back to Edgecombe. And we continue to reinforce their abilities to be able to do that. But that was only after hearing from our community how important it was to make sure that our students knew that they could do the same thing as other students in larger districts with more resources? How do we make sure that they understand that the work and the things they do here have meaning and matter? And so I really think those community conversations, empathy interviews with students and with parents, with community members, we wanted them to make sure that they believe that they could make these things happen. You can't say, I want you to advocate for yourself, but then when you do, I'm not going to listen to you. It helped us as adults build some flexibility around letting go of some of the things we've done in the past that really didn't matter. Those weren't things that helped students get better or help schools be better. We learned quite a bit in the process as well. So I would say for other school systems, to be able to have a relationship with your community, to be able to listen to the community listen to parents, listen to business partners and faith-based, but especially listen to your students around what they're able to do and what their passions and dreams are about. What is an empathy interview and how is that different from a community conversation? 
So with the empathy interview, we have kind of a protocol that we would use. So the empathy interview is asking permission to have certain conversations with a person. And so the empathy interview is is really trying to, to get at, as a person, what are the things that have been good for you? What are the things that have been difficult? Are you willing to have a conversation with me about those things and to trust me to hear your situation, your story. We recorded them. And of course, we asked permission because we wanted to capture certain things that sometimes you you, you don't do the empathy interview and you're taking copious notes. You, you need to have a, a face-to-face and be able to read what's going on with them. The empathy interviews were, we did them on each other before doing them with students just so we could be comfortable. We got some feedback from Transcend when they would share information with us. So there would be a set of questions, kind of like a a one-to-one conversation. The the questions or inquiry would be like open-ended questions that would really focus on the students or or whoever you're interviewing their experiences that just kind of help unpack who they are as a person and what might be some of their needs or some of their desires, passions, dreams that they have. So that was the empathy interviews that that we conducted. And there may be a multitude of, of different types of empathy interviews, but those were the ones that we conducted with our students and with our families. It's worth saying that this concept comes from Silicon Valley, where empathy interviews are done with consumers of new products or in the software design process. The idea is if you're going to introduce a new product, you do an empathy interview. What is the user's experience? What do they feel when they're using this? And then how can you improve the user experience? So very interesting to me that it started in this kind of very product, hardware, software type environment, and now has really evolved to this incredibly human, you know, how do we kind of get at our, at understanding each other better? What about the role of inspiration visits? One of the ways you've got community buy-in, I believe, is that you showed people what education could be. So inspiration visits give us an opportunity to go to a school, a business, and it's to inspire, is to see what others are doing. It may be look very different from our setting, but it gives us an opportunity to see the work that's being done, to hear from the folks who've done it. They will share with us ground level, right? And then kind of all the tweaks along the way that they've had to make in order for for whatever we're seeing on this particular day to have come to fruition. And so we did numerous inspiration visits. We took families, we took students, we took our board members, we took community members, because again, as a school system, it's not just us doing the work. We want to make sure that our community is a part of what we're dreaming about and what we believe can happen. And so we would go to really neat places that were getting great results for students. And we wanted to learn together. So we'd pack up. One time we went on, took a bus with a number of family members that were a part of that bus trip. And we went to New York and we visited schools there. We went to DC and we visited schools there and we would do it spring break or we would do it say in in conjunction with a weekend. But it was our opportunity to see what's happening in this world that we might not be aware of. And we want to go and learn from you. We want to see what you're doing, how you're doing it, why you're doing it. 
most places will have students talk to us or they'll have parents talk to us. And of course, we'll get the the background information from the folks that are leading the work. But hearing from students, hearing from families, hearing from communities, seeing data or seeing things the before and then seeing the after. I mean, it's inspiring to see the work that's happening throughout the country. And so we use those to encourage us to learn from. You know, we never go on an inspiration visit and we go back and we do it exactly the same way they did it. We have to tweak it to fit our our community and fit our students, but it gives us wonderful ideas and it gives us hope that these are things that can happen. And our kids get excited and families get excited when they see positive things happening in communities that it may look like ours, they may not. They begin to believe that those graduate aims, those things we said we would do, that we actually mean it, right? They, they start to believe, okay, these people are not just saying this. They're really serious about this. They're going out of their way to find things that work for kids and that will work for our kids. You told me that sometimes in high needs districts, we focus on basic needs and we do not offer the opportunities that more affluent districts might get. And on the surface, you know, there's an easy logic to this. You've got to get the basics. But you said to me, and I quote, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Explain to me why poorer districts, high needs districts are being denied this and what can be done. I think that it is easy to say we have to get to this certain point with the data, with the students, before we can do the things that have bells and whistles and are fun. Because I think there is a sense of urgency when you're in a high-needs district. And poor is is more than not having money. Poor is not having opportunities. And so although economically our kids may struggle, their families may have a hard time, what we don't want to create is a school system that's poor, so to speak, lacking opportunities. And so we we are determined that we don't have to wait until our kids get to a certain point or we wait until our data is at a certain level before we bring out the really good stuff, right? We, we want to be able to share great opportunities with students right where they are. I believe that waiting until we get to a certain point is a sense of, of neglect and not giving them an opportunity to spread their wings and to, to be the full person that they, they can be. And so I just feel like in our district, if we are able to provide students with a plethora of opportunities, we believe that our kids will excel, that they will make good on, on the things we've brought to the district to, to ensure that they have opportunities. And to date, that's what that's exactly what they've done. They've never let us down. We've never had a program. We've never had an innovative idea in which we trusted our kids and they've let us down. They've always excelled and exceeded our expectations. With the micro school, we did not expect them to outperform. We expected them to either stay the course, get a little better, see some progress, but they outperformed. And so that told us, trust them, believe in the kids. There are a lot of people who believe that in high needs populations, you really need a very strict disciplinary approach. And it feels to me that you're going with the same population in a very different direction and also getting the results. How do you sort of juxtapose your approach versus that kind of lineup, quiet in the playground, you do what I say, and here are very explicit rules. I mean, I think that works for a short period of time. 
<laughs> fear, right? We believe love first. We believe love first. If I love you and I show you that these are the things that, that we want to have happen, now you tell me what you'd like to see happen in your life. Now, if we can merge those two things together, yes, we have some standards we must learn. These are basics that you know, you, you, we have to make sure you can read. There are certain fundamental things that in order for you to be able to move and be successful in this world, you must know. And what are your passions? Can we put those together and support you as a student? We find that when students are passionate about the things that they are doing and the opportunities that they have, when we have put in the classroom a teacher who cares about them and wants them to be their best, the need for stringent, strict discipline is not necessary. We have kids who have lots of situations, home lives that could be considered sad. But school is a place where we want them to be happy. We want them to excel. Um, we want them to feel good about what's going on. And when we find that there are issues and they will come, we have conversations. We have circles where we're talking about what we did. How have you wronged this person? How do we make this right? And it doesn't mean that in the home we're, we're void of any discipline concerns or issues. It's just the approach that we choose to take. And the approach is not, you know, the gauntlet that comes down. The approach is, is love first, love first. And again, our kids have not let us down. You had this great line. You said, what I found was that our kids needed us to dream for them. And in doing so, provide them more opportunities, give them more space, more runway. And as you say, they have to deliver in return. And you found so far that they have. Uh, go back to 2017. You had eight of 14 schools not meeting expectations when you took over as superintendent. Your primary goal was to change that. Uh, you did. So you got a 70% improvement on that, which is very impressive, considering we also headed into a slightly complicated pandemic. From a leadership perspective, how did you do that? How did you get teachers on board, in particular the resistant ones? So starting off, it was scary. You look at your data and you're in a position where we have a lot of work to do, but I knew teachers had been working hard. I really believe that having conversations with principals, with the directors, with the other leaders in our school district drove the work. Without a sense of panic, we knew it was urgent. We don't want our students to be in this situation. The principals wanted their schools to be in a position where you're at least getting a year's worth of growth from your students. That's the expectation, at least that. And many exceeded growth, right? And so a few years later, we were 12 out of 14. So 12 of our schools had either met or exceeded growth out of the 14. That doesn't happen by chance. It happened because we have strong leaders in our school. We have teachers that looked at that data and looked at their classroom of students and said, there are some things I have to do differently. And I think they really focused in on making sure our students, they were there thinking about them not missing school due to behavior concerns. So how do, how do we work through that? I need you here if I'm going to increase those test scores. And also thinking about, again, opportunities. Kids are not really jazzed up about a test score. Kids are jazzed up about an opportunity. I don't want to miss 
this great activity that my teacher has going on in class today. And so I think those were the things that really kept kids engaged was what was going to happen in the room. We also partnered with a company called Public Impact. We had opportunity culture, and I say it's common sense, but this concept where skilled teachers, teachers who have a proven track record, are supporting teachers who may be growing, but they're not there yet. And so we utilize that model so that all of our teachers would have support in their classroom, some more than others, depending on what was needed. But those opportunity culture teachers, they were our teachers. And those were teachers who had a proven track record, meaning they had been very successful with with testing, with classroom discipline, with building relationships with students, and they supported other teachers. It is well received from teachers to get support from other teachers rather than to to get support from administration. It feels evaluative, but when it's a teacher, it feels like a collegial dialogue. And so our teachers pushed in and helped support other teachers. I do think that was one of the key things that helped us when we looked at our data and helped us kind of move along the trajectory of, of support. I also think the innovative work that we did because we didn't say, okay, halt, no innovative work until we get to a certain level. We didn't do that. Again, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We did both. We did and rather than or. And believing it was small tweaks that could change the story for our schools and for our students. And we're still on that pathway. We, of course, we've had some setbacks due to school closure, but we have a plan in place of how to continue moving you sort of gave me your three bullet points, what we plan to do to close those learning gaps. We are continuing to do, I will call it innovative work. It's a work of of love and passion. We're continuing to find opportunities for our students. So we are kind of upping the ante with some support that engages students in our community a little bit more, helping our high school students find different mentorships and things that connect them to, to work and to learning at a different level. So we are tying in some of our standards and our curriculum to that and making sure that we're providing some opportunities there. For the next two summers, it's a requirement of our district to, to have summer programming. All of it won't look the same. Different schools will have different things going on. But the crux there is we know that there are some things that students still need to get better at. And so those are the spaces in which we will do that work. We want it to be fun. We'll be learning, but we also want it to be fun. We don't want it to be you're here for summer school because you didn't do da-da-da. That's not what we want. We want it to be a learning and a fun space for summer. And then I think one third piece that we're looking at is we are continuing to figure out some, some additional spaces for our students. We have a pending demerger, and we won't get into that, but we have about 1,800 students that will possibly join us in the next couple of years. And so we're creating learning spaces for those students. And it won't just be those students. I'm sure our, some of our students will say, hey, I want to go over there. I want to do this. But we're creating about four different tracks. One is healthcare track. One is around entrepreneurship and just different ways to, again, recognize that our students have passions and dreams and that we want to be at the forefront of providing them opportunities to be their very best self. And as our graduate aims to to stay or return to Edgecombe County once they've completed their education. That's what we want. All right. A few rapid fire questions. What is your favorite book about learning? 
The Listening Leader. That's a great read. Helps us all check ourselves. We all have biases. We all have things that we think and we're not sure why we think them, but it helps us to to be clear about how we can be a, a great leader and support our staff and students. And what's your favorite book not about learning? I am John Gresham fan. So anything John Gresham or Robert Parker, I'm a mystery reader. Woman after my own daughter's heart. She loves mystery. <laughs> Last question. What are you binge watching? I'm watching Inventing Anna and the Queen's Gambit. Inventing Anna is addictive. I can't, it's <laughs> horrific and addictive all at the same time. I can't quite explain it. Dr. Bridges, thank you so much for taking some time with us. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Take care. Valerie is the second guest we've had who has invoked a lead with love approach. The other was Michael Sorrell, the head of Paul Quinn College. It strikes me that there are a lot of people who don't think this is possible or desirable, that in poor, higher needs districts, you need militaristic discipline, unforgiving dress codes, and an intense focus on core academics and test prep. I listen carefully to these people because they are speaking from their experience, from their schools, and I believe they want what's best for their students. So they come at their opinions from a good place. But I struggle to square that against the leaders I see who are getting excellent academic results without the rigid rules, the militaristic discipline, the three strikes you're out culture. I wouldn't want my kids to live that. Why would anyone else? Leaders like Valerie ask students what they think, listen to them and respond. They speak to parents about their hopes and dreams, and then they deliver on it. I loved Valerie's line here. If you want people to be open and transparent, you have to be willing to hear the responses. Amen to that. I also love the idea of inspiration visits, that families and students need to see things working to feel hope that they can work for them too. She said something powerful about these, that students see the grownups working hard to deliver exciting, engaging learning. It's not just talk. They care enough to organize these visits. Young people have epic bullshit detectors. We can say that we care, but they will know it if we show it. Finally, I love the idea that Edgecombe trusts its students. It took a big risk giving them more agency, more independence, more opportunities, more freedom, but they stepped up. They've never let us down, Valerie said. I get that this is a risk, but look at that reward. Thank you for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.